I feel it sometimes. <laughs> Actually, I'm 75. And, but a lot of me, you know, you can make fun of my age, but one of the things, Jason, I might suggest to you, just might suggest this to you, I mean, whatever you're gonna do with it, and that is, don't ever make fun of people that are older than you. You're going that way yourself. Make fun of people that are younger because you're not going that way anymore. It's not gonna happen. So, all these people that make fun of old people, they're, they're, they're gonna be there. I think, why do they do that? But anyway, that's just one of the foolish things of youth, I guess, that they tend to do sometimes. Well, anyway, it's great to be here always. It's, it seems like I get here every year or so, and uh, it's quite wonderful to be here. And yes, I am 75, been married for 53 years, and we have three sons, and uh, th th three incredible daughter-in-laws, 13 grandchildren, and four great-grandchildren. So, I'm ready to go anytime. But if you would, turn with me to Psalm 127. I am doing Occupy the Home, is what they have asked me to do. Psalm 127. Except the Lord build a house, they labor in vain that build it. Except the Lord keep the city, the watchman waketh in vain. In vain you rise up early, just sit up late, eat the bread of sorrow, for so he giveth his beloved sleep. Lo, children are a heritage in the, to the Lord, uh, of the Lord, and the fruit of the womb is his reward. His arrows are in his hand of the mighty man, and so children are of the, the youth. Happy is the man that hath his quiver full of them. They shall not be ashamed, but they shall speak with the enemies in the gate. Father, thank you for a wonderful day. And Lord, just a wonderful time to look at the issue as we watch the world in crisis. Things, Lord, in the last few years that we never even dreamed possible only a few years ago are upon the planet. And Lord, you look at us, and we've already heard definitions of Occupy, holding the ground, taking a stand, and being able to build and understand the world in which we're living and to live as you would have us to live. And Lord, we ask that as we look at the home, one of the greatest challenges of all, that you would help us and speak to us. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen. You know, I think most men at times, we can all dream, whether you're just driving down the street or you're in a different community, you know, you kind of dream yeah, where, where we would live, what our home would be like if we could just, you know, would we be by the oceans or a desert or in the mountains or uh, in a big open area or what would we, what would we have if we could just have any, anything that we could kind of dream up uh, the publication called The Professional Builder a magazine, it says that Americans think that the ideal home is a one-story, single-family ranch-style home on one half-acre lot, three bedrooms, two baths, a full basement, and a two-car garage. And I don't know where they came up with that, but evidently home builders, they assess a lot of things that people want and then try to go out and build it for them, I guess. And, uh, but it doesn't take a long time. You don't have to be around. <laughs> There's a lot of difference between a house and a home. And uh, the challenge of having a home is far more, far more intense 
than having a house. Many times people, have, they, they've got the house, but yet once they've got that and then they begin to look and realize how much energy went in to getting that and in the process, they lost the home. And uh, it's kind of like the story of the fellow I heard one time. He finally, he always wanted to go to a Super Bowl. He finally got tickets to one. But, of course, he's up in the nosebleed section in the end zone way up there. And he's trying to watch the game. But he's noticing. He looks down at the 50-yard line. And he's all the way first quarter. And there's an empty seat. Perfect place. 50-yard line. For this. Nobody's sitting there. He watches in the second quarter. Nobody shows up. And so halftime, he just thought, I'm going to go for broke. He sneaks down, gets over there, and he works his way down to where this seat is, and nobody's sitting there, and he looks at the guy standing there next to it, and he says, do you know, is, is the person taking a seat? Do you, are they coming? Or, do you know anything? And he says, no, you, you can have it. It's my seat. And he said, it is. He says, well, actually, my wife and I, you know, for many, many years, decades, we have one of a special time we have every year is going to the Super Bowl. And uh, we just always always done the Super Bowl and we just love it but uh, uh, my wife uh, she passed away and I said this was her seat but uh, you go ahead and take it and he says wow thank you so much he says but I can't don't, didn't you have a family member or a friend or somebody that would want this seat with you and he says well I thought so I asked them all but they all decided to go to her funeral and uh, <laughs> but <laughs> There's a guy who's maybe got a house, but he didn't have a home. <laughs> Something's messed up with somebody's priorities there a little bit. But, the, uh, and I, but sadly, there's a lot of men that would have a debate which one to go to. <laughs> you, know, so, you know, well, shall I go to my wife's funeral or shall I go to the Super Bowl? And, uh, uh, you know, with it. And there shouldn't be any struggle over that. But a lot of people do struggle over things like that. Struggle over their priorities all the time. And whether it's a Super Bowl or it's just a, a football game with the guys uh, or whatever else it is, it kind of takes you away. But here we look at Psalm 127 about building a home and uh, of what it is, not just simply a house, but of something there that ends up to have, have this home, where to, where to put your labor where the energy ought to be going, what it is that you really, when you're building your life, to one day at the end of it, you look back and say, I built a home, uh, you know, with my life. And, uh, and here is he looked, looks there at the labor and what it is that you ought to be having your priorities at. And uh, he, he says, in a sense, the life is it's filled with a lot of struggles, with anxieties. In vain you raise up, you know, you're up in the morning. In vain you're up late at night. In vain you eat the bread of sorrows. You go through all sorts of struggles in life. But the sad thing is a lot of people, they go through uh, a lot of the hours and a lot of the energy, but, but it doesn't produce anything. But here's something that somebody could and should be building that will bring great satisfaction. And they will look back and realize that they had their priorities right. Somebody once said that home is where life seems to make up its mind. And boy, is that ever true. What it is, I mean, you can think of all sorts of things in your life, but what really goes on within the home is where the mind kind of gets made up in a lot of ways. And it's within the family, it's within the home, where a lot of determination happens of convictions are being developed within the home, within our, our home, our marriage, our family, our children. Uh, attitudes are being developed, beliefs. Uh, 
uh, are happening. And the home is where uh, the number one influence really is with all of the other influences are that do go on out there within it. But the most powerful one is the home. And uh, there, that's, that's, you know, there's a lot of shift going on within our world trying to, sh to, to change the shift of that rather than acknowledging the home and what it is. Uh, a lot of other institutions are trying to say, no, we're going to determine things, but that shouldn't be that way. But here is something there is Solomon, of all people, writing this. We will look at him more as we get into it. But he, he tells us somewhat here the tragedy kind of of simply building a house. And, uh, you know, it's interesting. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, he talks about two contractors or two builders and uh, building homes. Uh, there and you, know, you could assume that they were both maybe hired, you know, the same people to do it. They had the same framers that came in, same roofers, same, you know, electricians, same plumbers, same finished carpentry, same floor, you know, you know, floor companies and carpet and painters. Maybe they had the same thing all the way through. They both spent all the time, all the money, all the energy into building these two homes. But the difference, you know, as Jesus makes it quite clear in it, is that when the storm comes, and they do come, they will come. That's set for all. You don't, you don't live a life on very long till you realize storm comes. And you can put a tremendous amount of effort into something, tremendous amount of expense. And, and watch it get washed away. And Jesus said here, when the storm comes, one of them, you know, though they built the same things, maybe right next to each other, one of them was built upon the rock and the other was upon sand and the one that was upon the sand was destroyed. All that energy, all that effort, all the work of all the various contractors, but here it's quite clear, obviously when Jesus is giving the sermon, uh, you know, in the illustration, it's built on Christ. It's something there that is built upon him. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 3.11, For no other foundation can a man lay than is laid, which is Jesus Christ. The foundation of life, the foundation of a home, the foundation of everything essentially there in life that ultimately determines. And you can go on and look at a career and all sorts of other things out there, but the foundation of it. Yeah, and here Paul adds in Ephesians 2.20, he says, you know, that are built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. The Bible makes it quite clear that the foundation of all of life, of every identity, of every person, of every home, of every marriage, of every family, has got to be Jesus Christ. And he is to be the one that's the, to be the contractor and the builder and, uh, of it right from the foundation on up, or it will simply be a house. It will just simply be something that is a structure that can fall apart under any given time, that can hit any storm that can come. And you know, the thing that to me that is so important, I hope on a day like this, that we would really stop and look. Who is the real contractor and the builder and the foundation of our home? Otherwise, it's in vain. To really honestly look and in, in, in going back, I mean, to, to think there's somebody being able to spend so much of their life, their time, their energy, uh, uh, and, and to one day have it be as futile and as heartbreaking and as sorrowful and as empty as watching it completely obliterated. And, it's, and, and here, to be a, to able to look at our home, to look at our life, what is the foundation? And to really ask us that. And I don't know, I mean, I've been, you know, 
well, with Calvary Chapel, 50, a little over 50 years. And I've done a lot of marriage counseling, a lot of family, and a lot of Christians, a lot of wonderful Christians. At the same time, though, is when you really sit down and talk to them about the issues and the struggles that are going on within their life, you really look and realize it's the builder and the contractor of their life, Jesus Christ. It gets very simple. And I, this is not an over oversimplification of it. It's really very simple. When somebody looks, who is the contractor? Who's the builder? you know, of, of, of our home, of our family. And I look at it and I say that because I think a lot of people, you know, their, their home, they really, it was an owner builder. You know, you can actually just go get a contractor and the contractor just does it. Now, a lot of ways you can build a house. Maybe some of you, you build out where you're, you know, owner slash builder. The owner is actually really the contractor. He goes and hires out all the subs. He kind of gets all there, but he's the one that is really kind of over it. He's not, the, he's not really kind of a, a trained contractor as much as, as, as he's just, I know what I want, and I'm going to go find the people to do it for me. And, and many times I look at Christians and I realize, you're, no, Jesus is not the foundation. Look at him say, he's not the owner, he's not the contractor of your own. You're an owner builder. They <laughs> say, well, what does that mean? Well, it means all the difference in the world. To me, I don't know how many times I've seen somebody, they really build it. Now, Jesus is kind of, they think he's all around. After all, they go to church, you know, maybe even pretty regularly. But at the same time, you know, an earthquake comes and shakes it up and there's damage. Well, they call Jesus in. We need you to help, help fix the house. There's difference, you know, you know, plumbing leaks. You have a problem there with them. Hey, you know, we, we, you know he's, he's, he's kind of more of a, of a subcontractor than he is the builder. Than he is. He's just called in there. You know, there's a problem in the marriage bed. No, no, we got a trouble. There's some infidelity here, whatever happened. Oh, we got to get back to the Lord and we call the Lord in to kind of help us, you know, deal with the marriage and deal with intimacy or deal with the plumbing or deal with communication or the wiring, you know, caused a house in the fire and, you know, uh, a fire in the house and we had all our problems with the pipes blow up and some, you know, that something's wrong. But he, but many people, they're an owner builder. Jesus is just called in when there's a crisis. Just somebody there when finally everything is about to blow up, everything is about to come unraveled, and now they look there and somebody says, you know where you ought to go, and, they, and they've been around Jesus enough, they get it kind of, but they haven't really got it to where he's honestly at the foundation. He is really the one that they're able to look and say, Lord, everything we are, we want to go all the way back to the core, down to the very foundation. And that is, what do you want for our life? Not the repair job we need right now. Not the, the you know, the, the thing that's got to be fixed. You know, you know, we got some dry rot or we got some termites or we got, you know, chimneys decaying and got to be, you know, re-cemented or something there. But something there to where really looked and they said, let's just go all the way to the foundation. What makes us tick as human beings? What is the driving force? What are our individual and corporate lives based upon? One time some years ago, I was in San Jose, the pastor at the time, and one of my boys, he found this house. He wanted me to go look at it. It was unbelievable. It was just on this beautiful street and all these old homes up and down, and it was just an incredible deal. And he is a really hard worker and a guy that is able to do a lot of things himself or also get people to help or do stuff. He's that type of a, of a worker. 
and it needed roof work and it needed, you know, it was old. It did the plumbing, you know, needed quite a bit of plumbing work probably and different electrical, you know, they had gone through and done enough there that it probably needed to redo a lot of the wiring, went all the way back to the box maybe and, and going through. But all of it kind of in his checklist is he's really trying to be, you know, thorough with it and, uh, you know, with it. And it's all really looking like, hey, this is all fixable stuff. And for the price of the house and what it'll cost to bring it up and, it, and incredible, it's like we got to grab this thing. I was real skeptical almost because it was such a deal. And, you know, that we need to get somebody in here that really checks it out. And the guy comes along and he takes a marble because he's looking at things there, puts it on the floor, and the marble kind of, you know, didn't go, you know, was just moving. And this guy checks these things out, and we go down underneath the house. And he starts going around there, fishing around with this big flashlight there. And he comes out and he says, don't you dare buy this. Why? What is it? What's wrong? And he says, the foundation of this house is completely crumbling all around it there's no there's no repair on this thing without actually coming through and the caught what it would cost to jack up this house from one place to another to completely rebuild this entire foundation it'll be the most expensive project you ever had because the foundation and so many times so many you know we we we, we hey we, we we know how to dress the thing up we can fix the roof we can fix the electrical let's go do this we need to apologize we need to say we're sorry we need to spend more time together you know, we need to go and get off and have date night. We need to communicate better. We need, you know, whatever else it is. And so they'll kind of get this list of repairs to kind of go and fix the thing up. But at the same time, you know, it's something where the Lord is not really truly at the foundation. And that is something that sometimes it takes time because a lot of people, they're Christians. They met at church. They love the Lord. They sang their song. They lifted their hands. They love the word, you know, and they fall in love. And they got some great infatuation that they realize, hey, no, this is a passion that I think we're really in love. You know, we're wired the same. We, we test out the same with, what are they, Masters and Johnson or some of these psychological tests. You know, that we have a lot of likes and sames and interests and, and, in, and church and everything. And, uh, but sometimes you get married and it doesn't take a long time to realize whose love you're running on. Whose love really guides your life. Is it your love, your infatuation, your ability to communicate and get along and work things out? Or is it something that you have discovered that the love of God has been shed abroad in your hearts by the Holy Spirit who's given to you? To me, sometimes, I don't know how many times I've sat down with couples that have kind of made this devastating confession. confession. You know, you know we're, we're just not in love. We're not in love anymore. We used to be in love as if it's the biggest disaster in the world. It's now, now it's hopeless. It's beyond hope. And I look at them and say, well, that was so? I don't care how much you love each other at all. It's immaterial as far as the Bible's concerned. The issue to me is how much does Jesus Christ loves you both? And if you're filled with Christ, you'll have that love. You will have it. The love of God is shed abroad in your heart. The, the, the Holy Spirit's love. Your human love is frail. It's selfish. It's weak. It's pathetic. I look back, I've been married, like I say, 53 years. When I met Jean and I fell in love with her, she was everything on the checklist. I could not believe everything. She was a beautiful woman. She was warm, she was friendly, she was happy. She loved the Lord. 
She people, she just loved people. People loved her. She wanted to serve the Lord. She had already been wonderful. I could just kind of, boy, this check, 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 check. You know, and, but yet at the same time, I'd have to honestly go back and realize I married her out of pure selfishness. I was a fool not to. She was the greatest singer, you know, but, but boy, I just got to, I just got to know, can I get this thing, this deal done before she figures out who's asking her, you know, and other things there. <laughs> but it, it, you know, it doesn't take long to realize, you know, there, I mean, there are how selfish our love is. I, my love for her was completely self-interest. Look what I'm getting in the deal. Not at all. What am I giving? What do I have within me at the core of my being? to give to her and that's where your foundation starts getting in check you know what is it that is really there at the very core of you as a man as a woman are you filled with the spirit of god is the, is the love that you have for your home for your marriage for your family for your children for whatever is it something there that you realize how much jesus christ loves them and you look there and say lord i am the vessel that i want you to love them through me I want to be the number one vessel that one day that they would look and back at the end of their life and say, of all the people I'm grateful for, it was you because you were God's main vessel to love me and to care for me and to be kind, to be gentle and to be patient and to be long-suffering. You were that person. You were you know, God in the flesh to me. You were the spirit of God with hands and feet. And that's the foundation when somebody really truly looks and realize there that, that, that the love of Christ there is what it is. I mean, when you look at the love of Jesus and we look at our natural passion or our feeling or what drove us to each other originally and realize God's love is far deeper than that. Jesus' love, his commitment is a love that goes and it dies on the cross. It's buried in a tomb. It bears our burdens, it bears our sins, it bears our failure. It takes it to the cross, it dies on the cross, it rises again and it returns to come back to love us again and again and again. And not ever because Jesus felt like it. Nothing to do with, you know, I'm gonna go to the cross and die for you because I feel like it. He didn't feel like it at all. He sweated as it were great drops of blood and he says, Father, I would that you'd remove this cup from me. This is tough. This is tough. It was for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. For something there, when that love that does go to the cross, that does die, that does rise, that does forgive, that does come back and love again and again and again and again, one day it will bear fruit. One day it will come home. And when there's something there, when somebody just looks at, you know, at what, why do you love your wife? How do you love your wife? Where does the love come from that you love her with, that your children, your grandchildren? Where is it all? And that's the great test. You know, I don't think, you know, when you would look at Peter or Paul or Stephen who was martyred, you know, and, and uh, the disciples that went through and were cut to pieces, you know, themselves, all the things that they went through. No, I don't think one of them felt like going to the cross. None of them felt like dying. None of them felt like being beheaded. But they loved the Lord. And they looked whatever it was to love him. That was the commitment. 
that it took for them to live the life that God called for them or when we enter into marriage. This is what ultimately where the real test is. This is where it really comes down to. God designed marriage in such a way as it doesn't work without him. It can't happen without him. I'm never surprised when two people look and say, we don't love each other. I'm not surprised at all. You were never designed to love each other. You were designed to be a vessel through which God's love would flow through you to one another. And if you haven't learned that, if it's not there, then we're in terrible, terrible trouble. You know, we have this picture so often of the movies where this couple that's in love and this beautiful flowery field with flowers growing up and they're running from one side to the other, seeing each other in slow motion with music in the background and they mate in the middle in each other's arms and the music crescendos into this phenomenal, beautiful thing as the orchestra plays and they fall into this passionate embrace. And, uh, you know, that's something that in somebody's heart, it's the result perhaps of the consequence of their something I think I can honestly say and I believe this is true of my wife uh, as well that there's something there that what we have we can't believe it but it is so different than what we started with it is a world apart one of it was our own you know invention our own you know commitment our own strength but through marriage God shows you the limits the failure the insufficiency of yourself, how you can hurt each other and let each other down and fail. And either learn the love of Christ and realize that, you know, Jesus, uh, we, we, we need your love. We need your help. We need your power. And people, again, they talk like if they don't feel it, that there's some fatal blow that has been now struck. But it could actually be the very thing that finally instigates what God always wanted for them. Until, you know... Sometimes you really look and maybe ask yourself the question, honestly, what is the foundation of your home? What is it? And if you look here, maybe as a man say, well, I'm a Christian and I love the Lord. We go to church and all we can check off all the kind of blanks, but I don't know if he's the foundation. I don't know if my wife and I could sit there and go, you know, and sit at each other and go look down at the very core of it and say, is Jesus the one that this is his home? He controls it. It belongs to him. We live here because he wants us here. We do what we do because he wants it that way. We spend our money the way he wants us to spend our money. We spend our time and our energy the way he wants us to spend our time and energy. I mean, many people, they go and spend their time and energy and money and effort all week long how they want, and then they go and come in and church, sit down, throw a little something in the offering, and here, you know, we've made our, you know, donation to the kingdom. But they don't realize they've cheated themselves. They've cheated themselves instead of being able. And it's something that I, I challenge you men. In a sense, I'm not a big challenger type of a guy. But to ask yourself and maybe be able to sit down with your wife and say, honey, do you believe that Jesus Christ is the foundation of our life? Are we missing something maybe? Is there something that we maybe have held back and we control? Oh, we give it to him as something comes up and a crisis happens. But we don't want to go to heaven with anything less. But it's not only a home where the Lord is at the foundation. 
He says, except the Lord, you know, uh, you know, build the house, the labor in vain is built. But he says, except the Lord keep the city, the watchman waketh in vain. In other words, not only is, it, is, is the Lord the owner of it, and not only is he the, the contractor and the builder of it, he's the one that protects it. He's the one that, that he realizes not only what I just built, did I do that, but I'm also the one that I maintain it. I watch over it. You know, if God doesn't build the house, the builders only build shacks. But if God doesn't guard the city, the watchman waketh in vain. You've watched and tried to take care of your house and be smart and do good things. You know, we've all tried to stay ahead of it through the years. You know, which one of us, if we could go back while well, we were kind of watching, but we were mortal. We made mistakes. We failed to see a lot of things that we wish later on we would have seen and done. I remember a couple years ago, I was, we were at pastor's conference about, I don't know, maybe 1,500 at it. There was this panel up front, and one of them asked me a question. He said, if you could go back 40 years and give yourself some advice, what would it be? I said, buy Apple. You know, but the, I mean, a lot of times we would go back. I was a joke, but then part of me thinks, man, there's a, you know, which doesn't think, boy, if I'd have done this, or if we'd have done this or moved there, I'd have taken this job, or I would have done this. But boy, here we keep on struggling, going from pillar to post and trying to do this and reinvent ourselves and start over. And, but so often, God, this is his plan. It is his plan. You look at all the people that bought Apple back then in which one of their lives other than we'd all, everybody wants their bank account. Who wants their life? You see these people on the cover of, of, you know, People Magazine and all these things you check out that they've got it all. They got the world by the tail. They've got a house and home. They got many houses. They've got homes all over the place. They're jet setters and go anywhere, anytime, anyhow, and they've got it all. They don't have each other. Everything's a shambles. While they think they've got everything to want to keep the city, it's, it's de destroyed under the very watch. But here the Lord looks there and he says, you know, there he says, if you don't let me build it and keep it, you're in trouble. In other words, I don't just build it and come and, and, and hand you the keys and turn them over. He says, I stay on location. I stay there. I stand guard. I watch. I keep it. I care for it. You know, so many, I wonder how many of us, maybe one point, you actually, you know, somebody did build a house. You got a brand new home at one point. And you, they got the keys. You moved in. How long is it before the, you know, next thing you know, you get an endless honey-do list. The whole thing begins to go down. Now, you know, well, not only homes do that, people do that. Homes, families go down. Marriage to do that. But the Lord says, unless I keep it. And here, amazingly, Solomon, of all people, Solomon knew this. Solomon wrote this. You know, here, Solomon spent seven and a half years building the house of the Lord. He had the world's greatest architects, best craftsmen ever, finest and most expensive materials drawn from all over the world. And here, at his dedication, Solomon started out great. You couldn't ask for anything better. And yet at, at the dedication of the temple, the Lord spoke and he says, if you or the kings who succeed you ever turn away from following me, this house will become a heap of ruins. God said, you turn for me, this home that you built for me, 
I won't be around it anymore. It'll be gone. In other words, you know, here the Lord's telling there, he says, you can seek me all at the beginning. You can look there. And how many even marriages start off quite well, but somewhere along the line. Here you look at Solomon who started off quite well, but, but along the line, everything else took over. You know, you can seek me when you start, but if you don't seek me with the same fervency, every day, every day. The Greeks had a proverb, if, if you always keep the bow bent, eventually it will break. When somebody is out there just fighting now to do all this other stuff, you know, they've got their business, they've got their corporation, I've got a, you know, mouths to feed, I've got all these things to do, I've got a career, I've got these responsibilities, and if I don't do those, everything else is in trouble. But little by little, the next thing you know, you're rising up early. You're staying up late at night. You're eating the bread of sorrows, and it's in vain. What happened? Solomon, what happened? You know, what, I mean, here, you know, you know, next thing you know, I mean, how does a man one day wake up, you know, with 700 wives, 300 concubines, 1,000 women, 1,000 of them? You know, I mean, what is in the world that happens to somebody there that they find themselves, their home, their life in such disrespair, completely falling apart while they may be working so hard to try to do stuff instead of just keeping it where it ought to be? Douglas MacArthur II, the nephew of the famous World War II Douglas MacArthur, he served in the State Department when John Foster Dulles was the Secretary of State. Well, one night, Dulles called the house of MacArthur's house, and his wife answered the phone, and when he wanted to talk to him, explained that her husband was not there, but angrily, she said, MacArthur is where MacArthur always is. Weekdays, Saturdays, Sundays, nights, he's at the office. Well, within minutes, Dulles got a hold of MacArthur, found out where he was, gets a hold of him, and with a terse order to him, he says, go home at once, boy. Your home front is crumbling. And you know, that's a good thing. Sometimes God may want to look at some of us and say, go home at once, boy. Your house is crumbling. And to look there and, uh, and the home front can be in trouble except he build it. And the only way I knew that, Billy Graham once said, a family that prays together stays together. Something that just a simple practice, the simplest practice in the, in the world, really, that my wife and I have just done. I mean, we read through the Bible every year, every year. We actually don't read it together because she likes to read, you know, a psalm, and then, you know, she's got this whole thing where it's all broken. I just read from one end to the other. She gets up before me and starts and does her reading, and then she's on the bed. She's got all of her little devotional books and her little journals and all this other things, you know, that are there. I get up. I go out in the living room, sit there, and I read mine. And then we get together, and we pray together. And there we have a list of all of our children and our grandchildren and our great-grandchildren. And there's always a few of them that, we're, that we note that we're praying for specifically of things going on within their lives. And then as we pray for our day and the events that are there, there's something that's just so simple. Nothing profound, nothing spiritual, nothing great. Many times, just the reading and just the prayer was almost just, okay. Just like you just add a bowl of oatmeal or something. 
But somehow or another, you know, there's still nutrients in it. There's still vitamins. There's still something foundational right within it of saying, Lord, we don't just want you to build our house. We want you to keep it. And that's the only way I know how you can ask him to keep watch is to where you have yourself constantly in check and to where you, you look at each other. And I tell you, my wife has this way, you know, when she, she, I, she walks out into the living room there and then she, she can have that look. You know, like there's some unfinished business, you know, between us. Because me, no, I don't have any unfinished business. You know, most men, I'm fine. If I'm fine, I'm fine. Now, if you've got a problem, you go pray about it. That's why you go pray in the other room. You do that there. <laughs> don't bring it in the living room, you know. So, no. She has this graceful, loving way of bringing it in there, and it becomes somewhat of a prayer and a topic. You know, keeping short accounts. Short accounts. Don't wait until something catches on fire and a pipe breaks and, and uh, you know, you're, you're running like a, you know, five-alarm fire around the house having to fix it. But there's just something you just day by day by day, Lord, watch, 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 watch us. Keep us, keep us, keep us. You know, they're, you know, with it. And here's Solomon. You know, sadly, I mean, to think of a man writing this, the very man who wrote this, you know, ultimately, after his, at the end of his life, vanity, vanity, all is vanity. You know, frustration, agony, hiding in the corner of a rooftop. You know, it, it, they're, you know, high from, from his wives. You know, they're, you know, they're just like a dripping faucet, he called them. You know, they're a, a, a contentious wife. Somebody there who's just, you know, I, you know, I just, you know, I'd say, I would think you'd have a contentious wife. You can't have a thousand of them and not have at least four, five, six hundred of them mad at you at any given point. You know, I mean, sort of the thing. What was he thinking, you know, with this? But the, the thing is, is at the end of his life, to one day look at the wisest man who ever lived, and all he could think of is vanity, vanity, all is vanity, vexation of spirit. My life is awash with agony. It doesn't have to be that way with anybody. But sometimes the hardest thing the hardest thing that you may do in your own life is go home and sit down with your wife and ask her, is Jesus the foundation to you? Maybe one of the most difficult things you may ever have to say, you know something, honey, I don't know that we've asked the Lord to keep the city. We need to be praying together. I have not led this well, but I don't want to finish this way. I would wonder how many of you wish you could do that, and yet you're sitting there right now and think, I don't know if I could. But Solomon, then he goes on with us more of the, the vanity of, of, of poor, you know, priorities, demanding. He says, he, says, he says, in vain, you know, you rise up early to sit up late. Now, everybody, maybe you, you got work, you got labor. The Lord threw Adam out of the garden. He said, you're going to work by the sweat of your brow. The earth is going to bring forth thorns and thistles. It's going to be a tough life sometimes. But it's not in vain if you're doing it right. Everybody goes to work. Everybody sweats. The, you know, the rain falls on the just and the unjust. All these things fall upon everybody. But the one that is doing it with the right heart before God, it works. He brings them through. 
It's not only there that is demanding. Sometimes it's excruciating. You know, you eat the bread of sorrows. Eat the bread of sorrows. You know, one of the things that, you know, when you go through life, there's sorrow. And again, the drain falls everywhere. There's the sorrow of losing loved ones. There's the, for some of you have lost children. And to me, the worst thing is that we, we always think, well, I, I, I want to outlive my children. And I can't stand the thought of having something, or my grandchildren, my great-grandchildren, or terrible things that can happen in, in pain, in accidents, in disasters. And sometimes it's excruciating, praise, exhaust, and you feel like you're going, you know, nowhere. In 1851, the greatest marvel was steam. They discovered the power of steam in the Crystal Palace exhibition opened in London's Hyde Park. People flocked to see all the things that they were now doing with it. Steam plows, steam locomotives, steam looms and organ and cannons. The first prize for all of the inventions with steam went to invention it had 7,000 parts. And when it turned on, there was pulleys and whistles and bells and gears that made a lot of noise. But ironically, the machine did nothing. It just had 7,000 moving parts, a huge amount of commotion, but no use. I wonder how many people, they got a lot of you know, parts turning here, bells, whistles, cranking stuff out, all the energy. You get up just like anybody else does. You go to work, you get up early, you stay up late, you eat the bread of sorrows, but at the end of it, it's just wasted steam. And sometimes it's exhausting. But he, he, he gives his beloved sleep. He gives a sleep. Dr. Charles Mayo from the Mayo Clinic said, worry affects the circulation, the heart, the glands, and the whole nervous system. I've never known a man to die of overwork, but many of anxiety. But here, the person that will deal with it, they get the foundation right. They get the one overseeing it right. Then Solomon goes on, and he says, but then there's a great blessing that comes out of it. He says, lo, children are a heritage of the Lord, and the fruit of the womb is his reward. Something there, you know, you know when your kids are young, that are going through making their choices in life, where they're going and what they're going to do and what they're going to be and all the crises that they can bring and that are there with it, all the episodes they go through. And sometimes, you know, teenagers, they can, they can sure limit a lot that they're going on within somebody, within your heart and your life. What in the world have I done? What am I doing? Somebody once described a baby as a digestive apparatus with a loud noise at one end and no responsibility at the other. <laughs> the sad thing is, is that they keep growing up that way and still nothing happens. But ultimately, the real wealth, the real wealth is your children. Like I said, I'm 75. My days are lumbered, numbered. In the sense of what, as I look to the future, I mean, you know, I don't know what's out there. I just know it's not much. <laughs> I know basically, you know, where I've been, what I've done, it's kind of there in a lot of ways, but I also know what it is there in a sense there of being able to look 
and say they're a heritage of the Lord. The fruit of the womb is the reward. I look there with God, not only what he's given me and the wife, but I look at my three sons, their love for the Lord and, and the challenges they, they went through getting there, arriving at that place, arriving at that within their heart. And then as he goes on, he says, as arrows are in the hand of a mighty man, so are children in the, in the youth. Now I realize my, I've shot my, my wad <laughs> by this point. You've been there, done that. Whatever you're going to be and do, it's pretty well over. But also to look and realize the arrows that are flying, the arrows that are young, the arrows that are pointed in the right direction, the arrows. There you look back, and my wife and I, we look at each other and say, wow. Look at the grandchildren great-grandchildren, and you look at their lives, the arrows that are flying that haven't even, you know, we've, I've crested. I'm kind of just, just almost there. <laughs> a lot of me is there, but you know, when you've already replaced two hips, two knees, one shoulder, you know, you've lost a lung, you've had a stroke, you've lost an eye, you've had 14 kidney stones, you're kind of begging, when are we gonna finally crash and burn this thing? You know, <laughs> I'm ready. Yeah. And the night I told my wife, I said, honey, I'm ready to go anytime. And she says, and I'm ready for you too. You go now. <laughs> no, that didn't happen. I kid her. True story though, my mother and my father who deeply loved the Lord got up there. They were like this. Every day they got up and prayed like this. They read like this. They went through this. 63 descendants. I stayed with them a couple times. They prayed for every one of them every day. 63 by name. And when my father, he, when he, he lived to be 95, but he had a number of crises on the way to passing. But one time he had one, we thought you were rushing to the hospital. They'd taken him there, the ambulance, and we arrived. My mother is dealing with Alzheimer's kind of preliminary mid, middle stages. And here my dad, he's laying there, but they stabilized him. He's fine. And so we're just sitting there talking with him. We got my mother there, but she's, you know, not very much aware of what's really going on. And so the doctor's coming in and explaining things. And my mother, she's looking at my dad and she says, honey, you go. You just go now. I'm right behind you. You go. And he says, Carol, I'm fine. I'm not going anywhere. She says, no, no, honey, don't stay here for me. You don't stay here for me. And he says, Carol, honestly, I'm going to stay. I'm here. Oh, no, you go. She's just so sweet. She says, tell Jesus, I'm right there. I'm coming right behind you. <laughs> and my dad, he says, okay, I'll tell him, you know, or something. And because she couldn't focus with it. But then my mother, when then we'd go and visit her, went in an Alzheimer's home. Incidentally, of all things, Calvary Chapel, when I first came with them, we were in this little building on Sunflower. They ended up selling that different times through the years. An Alzheimer's home ended up buying the property, scraping it, and they built an Alzheimer's home. My mother ended up there. And we go see her, and she said, where am I? I said, Mom, you're in church. <gasps> oh, it's so wonderful. But here she didn't know me. She didn't know anything. Now, who are you? I'm Don. What do you do? I tell people about Jesus. Oh, that's so wonderful. And then we go. And then a couple minutes later, now, who are you? I'm Don. You know, and we go through the whole thing over again. Oh, what do you do? I tell people about Jesus. And this is Jean. Who's Jean? This is my daughter, your, your daughter-in-law and my wife. And she loves Jesus. Oh, that's so wonderful. She didn't know anybody. And then we'd pray with her. Hold her hand and pray. And then she'd pray every time. And here she didn't even know who was with her, and she would pray for every one of us by name. It was like, how did she? She knew. 
It was so embedded in her, her love for, his, for her family, so over and over it for so many years. And when somebody looks there and realizes your way, your wealth is your children, and maybe they're away and, they're, and you need, God, help me go get them. I need to get my wife. I need to get my foundation. And Lord, I want to spend the rest of my life getting my kids and getting my grandkids. I want arrows flying before I go to heaven. And I want to invest all I've got in that until that is. Billy Sunday, the great preacher, he said, the tragedy of my life is that although I've led thousands of people to Jesus Christ, my own sons are not saved. Wow. My father-in-law, he died in 1996, in 93, loved the Lord. And, uh, but one time, I, he, we got him to be, he was our next door neighbor for a while. One day I'm in the garage and I'm helping him take the trash cans out. And as we're packing up the trash cans, I mean, we're taking them out, I notice in the trash cans, he's got all of these medical things, you know. He was a, he was a surgeon, he came from Mayo Clinic, very brilliant man, five degrees, just off the charts, you know, but, on, but here's all of these things of his medical degree and of his awards and of various things all through the years, you know, the things that doctors hang on the wall that when you walk in to look at, so, you know, you might trust them. <laughs> all of these things, they're in, they're in trash cans. And we're hauling them out. I said, Dad, what are you doing with these? These things, you know, I mean, here's your medical degree. Here's this degree. Here's your graduate degree. Here's all, you know, this stuff for mail and all these honors. What are you doing with it? And, uh, and he says, I don't want them. I don't want them. He says, for one thing, all the people that signed him are dead. And he says, frankly, they embarrass me. He said, you got to be kidding me. He said, no, they do. This was like 35 years ago now. He pulls one out, and I, and I said, "If you look, if you don't want them, I'll take them. I'll put my name on it. I'll hang it in my house." <laughs> I'm kidding him, but here, they're, you know, they're this beautiful scrolling—they just really—and so I actually kept a couple for my wife, and we hung them around for a little for a while. You know, it didn't change the name, obviously, but anyway. But only he—he he said they embarrassed me. I said, "Why?" He said, "I'm ashamed." And I said, "Why? What do you mean?" And he supposed when I said, "Well, like this one came from USC, School of Medicine." I only had to go down, you know, three hours, one night a week for six months to teach, teach a course there. That I was away from ministry, away, away from the family. He takes out another one. He says, oh, I wanted this one really bad at the time, this award. Yeah, that, I was only gone for three months, and I only had to commit to do this. And I only had to teach that course. And then this one here from the American Medical Association. And each one of them, he had the story of it took him away from what he should have been doing. And each one, when he's pointing, he's staring, giving me that father-in-law stare into the eye, you know, that here I am in my mid-40s, and he's telling me, what are you doing? What are your priorities? And I'm in ministry. I can easily say, well, I serve God all day. He knew what he was talking about. Your priority is right next door where you live. And when you look there and realize that there, there's the arrows that will be in the hands of a warrior, for us to launch. And maybe some of you, I'm going to close in prayer, but as we do, maybe some of you realize, God, I've, I've got to go home. I've got a work I need to do. I want to pray for you. But I also, I'm just thinking while I'm running with this, if that's how what you're thinking, if you're thinking, God, you're speaking to me today, 
You didn't tell me anything I didn't already know, God. I know. But I want to do it now. I'm going to go home and deal with some of this. If that's where you're at, I want to ask you to stand. Because if you can't stand here amongst men of like passions where we all get it, we're going to pray. If you can't stand here, you won't stand at home either. You won't be able. But if that's you, I would like you to stand. To be able to say, Lord, I'm going to deal. And don't just do it because somebody else is. If there's something to realize, I want to occupy the home. I gotta, I want my home. I, I, I want my home. Father, I pray for each one of these men, and you know why each one stands. You know what's going on. They know what's going on. So Lord, we're not, we're just asking for courage. We're asking, Lord, to be able to go home and look at somebody in the eye and say, let's spend what time we've got left doing it right before the Lord Jesus. Let's ask him today and tomorrow and next week and next month to help us because we can't do it without him. And so, Lord, strengthen each man. Encourage each man, speak to each man that we can occupy the home, that your Holy Spirit will occupy our home, that you can walk in it and smile and say, this is wonderful. Are you human? Oh, of course. Do you fail? Oh, you do. Am I with you? Absolutely. All the way. So encourage every man. Give him a measure of faith to realize you raised him up to be the man of God where he goes. And may he be one there that his quiver is full. The arrows are in his hand ready to fly. Strengthen him and guide him and give him wisdom. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.